Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Do you hear Do you hear this? Do you hear Boy, that? Yeah. I sure do. Do you hear that? That is uh, just garbage water. <laughs> mm, it's fizzy. My, it's my favorite kind. <laughs> It's fizzy water. You know, it's my favorite soda stream water because tis the season. It's now finally hot here, uh, but it's unflavored. You know, usually I sweeten it up a little bit, make myself a little soda, but I'm tr- I have I have too much uh, sweet in my life, I've, I've found. This is my new thing, my raison d'etre, is I need to stop craving the sweet again. It's been very mm. troublesome. So I'm trying mm. to I'm trying to cut the sweet where I can, and it's it's created in me not a very pleasant individual. Some might say a monster. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say surly, but monster works too. Uh, if you ask my kids and family, I'm I'm I I feel like I'm I'm quitting smoking or something more serious, <laughs> and it's making me surly. And it's all about this sugar. It's like this alien lives in your body, man. And I I got the got it bad. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. It is crazy. How you doing? You sound terrible. I'm I'm a little under the weather, yeah. slightly. Yeah, just kind of got the crud, you know, the summertime crud. You're still going to be able to pull gonna... it together tonight, right? You're going to be able to, you know, bring your A game. I might doze off here or there, but <laughs> other other than that, I'll be good to go. That's all right. I'll carry it. I'll carry oh, there it. There you go. There you go. Just put you over my back. Yeah, just try to try to hit mute on my <laughs> channel if you start hearing the snoring. <laughs> Duly noted. Consider yourself muted. Uh, Andy, do we have any old old business? Uh, we got a few little things. We do? Um, yeah, first I of all. business. I know, I know. It's always exciting. First of all, our uh, wonderful friend of the show, Ben Lott, did comment on Thin Man. He hasn't quite caught up to King's Row yet, so maybe next time he'll have King's Row, uh, a King's Row comment for us. But for Thin Man, he seemed to like it, as he said. Uh, he, it connected with him a lot more than it did with us. Um, which, uh, yeah, I guess he really enjoys kind of the, the old school, the old school comedy, the old fashioned style of witty banter. He really enjoyed quality comedy and he loved it. I, I, uh, I love that he loved it. You know, I will say, as I said on the show, yeah, I may not have fallen completely in love with the film itself, but I did completely love Nick and Nora Charles and actually just. Just today, Pete, the next in the series arrived at my doorstep via Netflix. Oh, excellent. And yes, it's ahead of predestination. <laughs> oh, man. Andy, do you know what? Some things you just don't say. I know. I you have, have it said out loud. It. You don't even say it. I don't need to know that. Now I remember why I'm so mad at you. I was fine. Fine. Oh, dear. Fine. There I go. Open mouth, insert foot. Insert something. <laughs> <laughs> me. Uh, I uh, I am with you. I also adore Nick and Nora, 
even though like you it didn't quite connect with film i really i i find myself like i parade around and ask people to call me nick charles that's how <laughs> much that go for you <laughs> not as well as you'd expect or maybe about as well as you'd expect yeah probably. uh so i'm i you know i am i'm glad i also feel like i connect with that that old school humor even if the film is is sort of a, a wash for me so uh, yeah. I love that, and it's not—he is not even giving us a score anymore, uh, Ben Lot Blot. So now it's just like uh, it's—he like needs a new segment. He needs like his own graphic. Mm. He needs like an intro theme. We get Tommy to sing him a little acapella. See, she just <laughs> call it the Blot Spot. The Blot Spot. There I like go. it. Me too. It can be just a little spot on our site. Do you know what I noticed in the Flick Charters group over at the uh, over at the the Facebook? You've heard yes. of this. I you, have heard. Do you of notice it. we're getting called out? As like in in not in a tone of like hey I'm so glad I watched this movie but yes I'm watching this because I mistakenly committed to watching all the movies of the film board. <laughs> yes, he wasn't so much a fan of the Hobbit films. No, nope, nope. rightly so. There well, was some I, trouble. I yeah, I I guess I'm going to have to start calling the Hobbit films guilty pleasures. I, I, I quite think that would be them. fair, but but yeah. but it's too soon to call them. So for the next, I think there's a moratorium. You got to wait at least uh, 15 years before <laughs> so you can call them. So in 15 years, you can call the Hobbit as a as a guilty so, pleasure. So for the 15 years leading up to that, what do I call them? Just uh, bad taste? <laughs> no, they can still be guilty pleasures. We just can't discuss them on the show. Oh, I see. But actually, you're right. right. Let's oh, stick I with see. Right. your yours was better. Bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what else do we have? Do we have any other uh, uh, any other feedback? Uh, yes, we had a uh, a listener over on Twitter, Brendan Roberts, who uh, commented uh, listening to the Thin Man episode and have to say, yes, you should watch Mr. Roberts. So happy I share my name with a good film. As uh, our listeners may remember, we did bring up the Thin Man, or we did bring up uh, Mr. Roberts, the film, uh, because, of course, William Powell is also in Mr. Roberts, and neither of us have seen it. So it's definitely one that uh, I have now added to my queue, although Predestination is before it, Pete. Hmm, well, that's something. Is that modest, a redemption Modest consolation. <laughs> and a uh, big shout-out to Australia, because that's where Brendan Roberts is from. Awesome uh, to check in. Uh, Brendan, thanks so much, man. Indeed. Indeed. Um, all right. Uh, I think uh, maybe we should tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? Hey, everybody. This is The Next Reel, and I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello, hello. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the third in our series in the black and white work of cinematographer James Wong Howe with Alexander McKendrick's 1957 film, Sweet Smell of Success. Before we get into that, you should definitely learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're the kind of person who lobs libel for loot... Then you're also the kind of person who should head over to Instagram.com slash the next reel and play the next reel's Instagram, hashtag pony prize, hashtag guess the movie challenge. Andy, how did we do against the PR scum this week? Well, the PR scum were out to get us this week. They uh, <laughs> That's not <laughs> it, good. It took no time. In fact, I will go so far as to say two images that for me are are like 
kind of generic images that are meant to kind of lead people down lots of different paths. Well, it uh, only took to that second image for uh, one of our uh, one of our keen-eyed folk to catch the film. And yes, it was the um, oh, what would you call it? Uh, box office disaster? I don't know if it's a disaster, but it was a box <laughs> office experiment that didn't work. Called Nick of Time, a real-time thriller with Johnny Depp. And uh, L.J. Fuller clearly knew what the film was and was able to nail it. Second image in, a picture of an Amtrak train. He knew exactly what was going on there. So congratulations to L.J. Fuller. You are now entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. Does that say more about L.J. than he knew what that movie was or the movie? (laughs) It was not a good movie. It was not a good movie. Yeah, I never bothered with that one. That's because it was not a good movie. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, I, well, that's awesome. Congratulations, uh, LJ. Welcome to the club. And I and, do love uh, that uh, good old Stephen Smart had kind of a little time theme, if people hadn't he, been paying attention. A few uh, time travel movies uh, followed up by this uh, nick of time, just having time in the title. I love it. That's brilliant. Very Is that the end of our time series now, of his time series? Are, are I believe we moving so. On to some I, think other... it, I think he kind of did in a trilogy yeah. of a, uh, predestination, escape from the planet of the apes, the time machine, and then Nick, Nick of, of time. time. Excellent, mm-hmm. excellent. So uh, come back this coming week. Starts again on Friday. Yes, it does. Awesome. And uh, now, Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. <laughs> My trailer is called The Martian, a.k.a. Sending Matt Damon Back Into Space. <laughs> and that guy, that guy getting stuck on planets, huh? Am I right? Uh, I know. It's like inter- interstellar all over again. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So here we go. It's based on the book by Andy Weir. Have you read the book? I have not. I have not. But I... from from comments of people who've seen the trailer, they say it looks pretty faithful. Uh, that's that is my understanding as well. I uh, am not finished with the book, but it is uh, one that is high on my uh, list. As soon as we get through graduation weekend, a lot of shoots graduation weekend. But I'm about two hours into it in Audible, and uh, I'm I'm liking it so far. In fact, I'm liking it so much that when I saw the the initial goodbye Aries uh, promotional video, do you see that one? I did not. Okay, this was one where Matt Damon is on the the ship and he's giving a tour and introducing all the characters you know here's here's special mission specialist and here's the captain and they they have a little you know it's the thing you would you expect from nasa astronauts in space right right? uh and it i did not like that i did not resonate with that at all and so i was actually i thought wow that's that's it is that the trailer and then i saw the real trailer and now i'm much more excited about it so it was not as good as guy pierce's ted talk uh, for the Prometheus um, lead-up, it was not. It was not as good as that, I would say. Right. But the okay. trailer looks to me quite good. Uh, obviously, this comes from director Ridley Scott, writer Drew Goddard, uh, and it stars a lot of people that uh, look really good in this movie together: Kate Mara, Jessica Chastain, Kristen Wiig, obviously Matt Damon, Mackenzie Davis, Sean Bean, Sebastian Stan, Winter Soldier, what? Donald Glover, uh, Jeff Daniels, Michael Pena. Chewy IGO4, Axel, Henny, Naomi Scott, and even more people than that. But those are the people that I recognize. And so it looks like a uh, a, a, high, a highly uh, faithful adaptation of Andy Weir's book, The Martian. Uh, and it is, it, uh, man, when he looks up and says, I need to, I need to create, to grow four years of food on, in a, 
capsule that's designed to last for 30 days. I need to science the out of this place. Right? That that got me going. I was pretty excited about it. What'd you think? I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a hell yeah. Yeah, I think so. It looks. Uh, it looks just absolutely fantastic. I uh, Ridley Scott has kind of been very hit or miss for me in the last decade or so, and this just from the trailer looks like a strong hit. I think so too, um, and so you know we'll see. It's this may be his big chance to go to space and have us actually want to come with him. Uh, so this one comes out November twenty fifth. I think I can faithfully say this will be my birthday movie this year. Ooh, one of one of plenty. Very nice. Mm-hmm. What's yours? Mine is uh, the new Steven Spielberg film, Bridge of Spies, and of course my my uh, absolute favorite, Tom Hanks, is in it. Uh, it's a really interesting looking Cold War thriller about kind of a, an element of the Cold War that I guess I just really knew nothing about. The fact that uh, the CIA had captured a Russian uh, pilot uh, or ha- captured a Russian spy and and the Russians had captured a an American pilot and uh, the CIA hires this American lawyer to kind of be their uh, go-between to try to negotiate everything and get their spy or get their pilot back. And while also dealing with this whole idea of how do we treat our prisoners, you know, all the Americans are, are, are screaming, you know, kill this, kill this guy, kill this guy. And he's trying to defend him saying, we can't just kill him. We have to show these guys uh, that we are better than that. It uh, looks really strong. And I, I, one of the reasons, uh, I should say one of the other reasons I picked this trailer, obviously the main one is just because Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, but as some of our listeners may know, we're going to be talking about Jurassic World this weekend on our film board. And uh, so this past weekend, I went through the Jurassic Park trilogy and I watched the first three films just to kind of get myself all psyched up for Jurassic World. And watching those two Steven Spielberg films, uh, the first and the second one, uh, back to back, reminded me of the good and the bad of Steven Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) Do tell. I, I don't want to belabor this one any more than we have to, but I'm curious if you could summarize the good and the bad in a single point each. Well, I think the single point is uh, Jurassic World good, Jurassic uh, Lost World, <laughs> uh, Jurassic Park 2 bad. I don't think that uh, Spielberg, my understanding is he wanted to make Jurassic or Lost World um, because he was so disappointed at what happened to Jaws 2. Um, but I think he ended up doing the exact same thing that happened to Jaws 2, and it's just now it has a Steven Spielberg name attached to it. Um, yeah, not very good film. A lot of script problems, just a messy, messy thing. But he knows how to put a good story together, and even the uh, the problems with Jurassic Park 2 still highlight um, some of the great moments that Spielberg has as far as directing. It still has some great tense scenes, some good character moments, some great camera work. And uh, he definitely has kind of shifted into a lot more serious sorts of storytelling um, in this particular point in his career. This looks more in line with something like Munich, perhaps, or Lincoln. And uh, I am just really banking on the fact that this is going to be kind of in the Jurassic Park caliber and not in the Lost World caliber of projects that he makes. Well, here's hoping. Here's hoping. It's already getting it, some. It's getting some snarky uh, reviews so far. 
Is it really? I hadn't heard that. Well, that's that's the word. I'm trying not to read them, but people are telling me this is a man on the street kind of reportage here. I'm hearing people telling me, don't read the reviews because, yeah. Well, the Coen brothers are two of the three writers on this, and that's mm-hmm. another reason to be excited. I am excited. I'm not. I'm excited. Don't kill the messenger, man. <laughs> You're just telling me. There are people. There are people who are being snarky about this movie already. I won't say who they are, but they're out there. They're out there, and they may be closer than you think. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, This movie opens October 16th. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Hey, Pete. (sighs) Yes, Andy? You sound happy. Why should you be happy when I am not? Lancaster as J.J. Hunsecker, world-famed columnist whose gossip is gospel to 60 million readers. Tony Curtis as Sidney Falco, the kid who had ideas about taking over. But we happen to know I'm your star pupil, because I reflect back to you your own talent. I'd hate to take a bite of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. (laughs) Don't turn your back on him. You might find a knife in it. This is their story, and that of the big shots and big names who worship the sweet smell of success. Along Broadway, throughout Hollywood. Down Wall Street, on Capitol Hill, sweet smell of success. We're friends, Harvey. We go as far back as when you were a fresh kid congressman, don't we? Why is it that everything you say sounds like a threat? Maybe it's a mannerism, because I don't threaten friends. But why furnish your enemies with ammunition? And here you are, out in the open, where any hep person knows that this one is toting that one around for you. Sidney is a great salesman. He'd sell anything to get there. Just ask his girl. Sidney, I don't do this sort of thing. What sort of thing? This sort of thing. You need him for a favor, don't you? Well, so do I. I need his column tonight. All you think about is yourself and your column. You see yourself as some sort of a, a national glory. But to me and lots of people like me, your, your slimy scandal and your phony patriotics, to me, Mr. Hunsecker, they're a national disgrace. as the almighty J.J. Hunsecker. Tony Curtis as his man of all dirty work. Introducing Susan Harrison and the Chico Hamilton Quintet. Put your hands on my sister. Jake! I didn't do anything! Stop! This, it's not even the, and this catches me all the time. It's just sweet smell of success. There's no the. I, uh, I hear you on that one, Pete. Does that, <laughs> is that frustrating to you? It, it is enormously frustrating to me. It's just strange. 
is I, super strange. I, I always expect there to be a the there. Because it's like they're telling me, go ahead and sweet smell of success. Like it's telling me to do something. <laughs> like, but do it's telling me wrong. It's like, it's wrong. It's wrong. It doesn't really matter because the movie is, man, I had a kick in good time with this movie. Came out in 1957, directed by our uh, friend of the show, we're going to call him, uh, Alexander McKendrick. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy, his, yeah, Sandy, I yeah, what Sandy his McKendrick, call him. right? Uh, a written screenplay written by Clifford Odets uh, and Ernest Lehman, uh, uh, based on the book by Ernest Lehman, uh, stars man, a fantastic performance in my book by Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, uh, along with some just a wonderful cast filling out: Susan Harrison, Martin Miller, uh, Jeff Donnell, Sam Levine. Uh, I we'll talk about uh, talk about the the cast as it fills out, but it was uh, I had a, a wonderful time with this film talking about an unethical Broadway columnist, as uh, as and his uh, partner in crime, Sidney Falco, the press agent, PR mm-hmm. flack, uh, trying to break up Hunsecker's sister's romance with a guitarist, and it is like the story of. Uh, it's like the worst rendition of High School Musical, but told on the dirty, dirty streets of New York. <laughs> it's like, don't you get that? I mean, I walked away from this thinking, "Wow, this is such this is such a lame story." A guy wants another guy to stop dating his sister. The whole that's the whole thing is based on that. It's it really is when you look at just what the story is. It is really kind of uh, underwhelming. It's so dumb, and I, yet. I, right. I feel like there should be something uh, along the lines of Ace in the Hole, some big message about these types of people in this film. But it's not. It's really just about these types of people and the these ridiculous machinations that they go through to get their way and in the end bring them down. And that I think is a, a real testament to the film because it succeeds really exclusively on uh, dialogue and character because the story is so dumb and it's not like the story gets lost. The story is definitely still there. You have to, you have to get through the story, but, uh, but I do, uh, I just so adore watching the interaction between Lancaster and Curtis on screen. I just think it is fantastic. Tony Curtis as this just hungry dog on the street is just delicious to me every time he's on screen. Yes. Someone, I can't remember where I read this, but somebody referred to him as a fly. He's always flitting about. He hardly ever stops. In fact, it might have been something saying that the director told him to kind of think this way. I just can't quite remember. But basically, that is exactly what he is. He is this scavenging, hungry fly always buzzing about the like the fresh kill almost um and he he won't sit down if you watch him he hardly ever stops moving and it's fascinating to watch him and it's painful to watch how he deals with his relationships particularly the women in the film who like him and how hateful he ends up being to them almost because he knows he is a low, low person. And the fact that there are these two women in the film who end up liking him, it, it he knows that there should be no reason for people to like him. And it's almost like he is, he is demeaning them because he's 
hating himself and it's another way to make himself hate what he's doing even more oh that's great it, it this is you're right this is a film that celebrates self-loathing at a really <laughs> deep level um it, let's say you know last week i felt like we gave short shrift a little bit to um to james wong how can we can we start with that yeah we start with cinematography great. let's do that what, do you, what was your impression of the cinematography of this film well james wong how um talked to uh, McKendrick at the beginning of this project and really they I think they both agreed that in order to really make this story work it really needs to feel like it's actually living in the city it couldn't feel like a studio picture with uh, you know fake New York street sets it needed to feel like they were actually there and that was a huge 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 thing that they decided early on that I think is critical to the way the fi- the film feels and looks. The studio, uh, actually, or I shouldn't say the studio, it, this was produced by uh, Lancaster and, and uh, his two producing partners, Hecton Hill, who had their own kind of independent production company. This was right at the end of the studio era. And these three guys um, were basically getting this movie made. They funded a trip for McKendrick and Howe to go to New York and really just kind of go around and find the the world of this film. And and I think a lot of what we end up seeing on the film came out of that initial trip. You've got this just beautiful, beautiful dark play of the city at night. I mean, they filmed the vast majority of all the street stuff, I think, from midnight to 6 a.m., and you can really feel that. You can feel just this darkness to everything. You just Everything is thriving on all of these buzzing lights all around them. And that was critical to to finding this story, which does feel very noirish. This is probably of the films that we're talking about uh, for James Wong Howe in this series, the most noirish of the three of the four of them. Uh, you've got some great low angles of these characters. You've got just dark shadows. Um, everything is just kind of drenched. It almost feels like wrapped in this like dark black shadowy um, just mass. And uh, I think that um, creating that world was uh, was critical for this film. I, I think so, too. That was one of the things that I, I noticed in particular was the black point on this film was was deep, deep black. It was uh, it was it, you didn't get a sense that this was a sort of grayscale film. You watch this film and it is beautifully high contrast. The other thing that we talked about that I sort of missed last week was this week was the, uh, the deep focus or uh, the, the um, wonderful, there's some wonderful uh, shots where you have, um, you know, multiple characters on screen and, uh, you know, some just crystal clear focus up and down the, um, uh, up and down the focal range. And I thought that was a really uh, super useful in this case um, when you, when it really served the dramatic arc of the story. I mean, using, that focus technique puts us in a better perspective of the relationship, particularly between uh, Lancaster and Curtis, Hunsucker and Falco. Um, you know, depending on where they are on the screen, you really get to understand better what the power, uh, how the power ratio is distributed uh, between them. And I thought that I, worked really well. I think that's absolutely true. I think this film gets most of its praise, at least when I generally hear praise for this film, it is because of the just brilliant dialogue that runs from beginning to end. It's nonstop, fantastic dialogue, mostly by Odette's. Um, although I think Lehman has some of the dialogue, but I think most of the the dialogue that we all love so much in this film came from Odette's. 
but this film doesn't get enough praise, I think, for the cinematography and the look of it and just this world that they've created. The deep focus, I think, is an incredible point, Pete. And uh, paired with that is knowing how to move the camera and when to move it and where to move it. And, I mean, obviously that's paired with Howe and McKendrick finding all the right points. But you're right. I think um, rewatching the end bit where um, where uh, Falco has rescued Hunsucker's um, uh, um, sister from jumping off of the balcony, and he has her in her room. Uh-huh. And you've got that. You've got he opens the door like he's going to leave, and then he goes and closes the sliding door to the balcony, and the camera pans over. And when the camera pans back, we see through the door that he had opened into the the uh, front room. All the way across, we see that that uh, JJ has actually now come in, and you see him in the back. And of course, Falco doesn't realize that as he's dealing with the sister up in the in the foreground. Seeing shots like that, where you've got this amazing depth of field, there's so much storytelling going on all across the frame when you see things like that. And working so well with his cinematographer, McKendrick was able to tell a story that is just constantly alive i i think so and i think of the three films we've talked about so far this one is the one that that really stands out to me as as just a visual ballet i mean it was just such a treat to watch even with the sound off you can get such a sense of where these characters are in relation to one another uh that that i just found it a real treat it's a such a highlight of Howe's career i think absolutely it's completely uh i think one of the pinnacles of his of his uh wonderful career that he had Truly. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Clifford Odets. Um, uh, what do we know of Clifford Odets as uh, one of those screenwriters? Um, he's, I believe, primarily was a playwright and before all of this. And he came on because um, Ernest Lehman, who had written the, um, I don't know what, if you call it a short story, a uh, the novella, really, he had written a uh, kind of a short, uh, a short basically that was in a magazine um, that I believe it was called. Um, it was about J.J. Hunsucker, and it was called uh, Hunsucker Fights the World. That was the kind of foundation for this, and so Ernest Lehman was brought on to write the script. He had such a hard time dealing with Burt Lancaster, who, as I said, was one of the producers on the project and starring in it. Uh, Burt Lancaster, I guess, is notoriously um, very hot headed and hard to work with and it just kind of uh, layman ended up having kind of a I don't know if he got had a breakdown or just got really ill from it, his time here so he left the project and McKendrick thought that Odette's would be a great person to bring on board to kind of fix the script they had a short amount of time in which to do it and so Odette said that he could and they brought Odette's on to do it it took longer than Odette's um, said it uh, took, I think, like four weeks for him to do it, as, in, as opposed to two weeks, something like that. So he actually had to write the script on set while they were working. And so sometimes they had, you know, they got the pages like an hour before they had to go shoot it. So it was very, very uh, stressful for the filmmakers. But McKendrick could tell, reading the dialogue that Odette's was giving to him, that he was making it so much better. It wasn't that he was changing Layman's story drastically. The story pretty much stayed the same. It's just that he actually found ways to um, to build more into the scenes. So there was a lot more subtext going on. And you get so much of that from this dialogue that you hear as they're speaking, this just snappy, snappy dialogue. <laughs> Odette's 
has a great, I'm just clicking around Clifford Odets right now, and he's got a great quote, uh, sex, the poor man's polo. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it feels like it's right out of Hunsucker. That's good. It totally does. It totally does. Um, he was one of the people who was called before HUAC, the yep. House uh, uh, Committee of, on Un-American Activities, or House of Un-American Activities Committee, I guess, um, as you, uh, as people more often call it. The um, he was. Uh, did he? I think that he ended up naming names. He did. He, he was called yes. in 1952, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, that, that puts us within striking distance of this film. And I, I find it fascinating that here's a guy who is who continues to be prolific in Hollywood after that kind of an event. He showed up as a friendly witness after naming names. And this was after he had he had first joined the Communist Party, you know, two decades earlier. Uh, but only was in there for a few months uh, and uh, disavowed the party and then came out as a, as a witness. So and if you want to get a picture of who this guy is, uh, think of Barton Fink, uh, because apparently it is Odette's who served as the inspiration for that character. So you can kind of imagine Barton Fink going before the House on American Affairs uh, Activities Committee and, and that you get a picture for what it was like in 1952. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and this, you know, Lancaster was very much um, against all of that. And I believe there were a few other people involved in this project who um, were, they had uh, named names or, and he brought them on, or they had, uh, like, he was, he was one of the people who was, like, trying to help people get out of the whole situation, as Mm -hmm. I recall. Uh, You mean Odette's or Lancaster? Lancaster. Oh, that part I don't know anything about. Yeah. But all but I know th- is that it was interesting that Odets himself was never, um, he, he never got blacklisted in a, a blacklist heavy time. He didn't, uh, he didn't. What happened was he and uh, Elia Kazan um, named each other, I believe. And so somehow he avoided blacklisting because he named somebody, um, even though it kind of confused everybody the fact that he named people, but he was also named. Um, and I think what happened was um, he wasn't blacklisted, but he said that he was uh, tormented by public reaction to his testimony uh, until his death in 1963. I have no doubt that that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Still witty with a pen. Brilliant with a pen. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, the stuff that he uh, wrote, the uh, wonderful allusions to food that come up as these people refer to each other. You're a cookie with arsenic. You know, no, I, I would hate to take a bite of you or whatever. You know, the wonderful allusions to to violence is just like you want to see a man run a race with no legs and you just like these strange pictures of like, you know, uh, you know, here's your head, you know, weird, weird little references like that. And then animals also. It's just like the way that he kind of builds all this into this script that feels so biting, so much more biting than some scripts that uh, people would, you know, that are just full of just casual swearing and all of that. This actually feels really uh, biting. And it's, it's, it's stylized, I guess, but you don't hear people ever talking this way, but it's done in a way where it actually feels real. 
I think so too. It is an incredibly energetic script. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't slow down uh, ever. Uh, every time someone opens their mouth, it's it's a quotable moment, and that makes it uh, almost distracting to a point that that I find I, I it takes a couple of watchings just to keep up. Um, I haven't seen either of Odette's um, directorial. Uh, attempts. He did um, 1944's uh, None But the Lonely Heart with Cary Grant. Uh, and he did, what was the other one that he did? Uh, the Story on Page One in 1959 uh, with Rita Hayworth. Uh, so, you know, he's he's working with a, a cast that, I mean, this is not a, a cast of sort of B-string actors to help out a writer who's trying to turn director. I mean, this is, these are, this is a, a significant effort what did have you seen either of his films i haven't seen either of those uh the only other thing that i've seen anything of his really i guess is uh, hitchcock's notorious um in which he was uncredited having written the dialogue for some of the love scenes hmm. and i can't remember enough about those to uh, say one way or the other well it is he is he's just fascinating talent with language and makes it you know makes me really interested to explore more of his catalog so an interesting an interesting bit about uh mckendrick is he was really nervous when he saw the script and how much dialogue was in there and uh, i mean if you if you look at the other films that we've talked about on the show that mckendrick has directed men in the white suit and the lady killers they're nowhere filled with this sort of dialogue, this much dialogue. This is overflowing with just rapid, rapid dialogue that these people had to get out. And and understandably, McKendrick was a little, uh, little overwhelmed by it. And Odette's told him, don't focus on the dialogue when you're directing it. Just look at what they are what they are meaning what the actions are the dialogue will just come out and as long as you're making sure that the actors uh the intentions of what they're uh of what they're actually trying to get across as long as that's coming through then the dialogue is just going to be there to just fill in the gaps we, and and yeah i think that was uh McKendrick said that was one of the most helpful notes that he had now, you know, I should add, for those who don't check the show notes on this thing, if you go to thenextreel.com and, and check out the show notes on this, we do put, every time we can find it, we put a link to the script and, and uh, you know, trailer and the, uh, you know, various sundries about the film in the show notes. So check that out. The script for this one is, is we've got a working script, a link to a working script up there at Daily Script that um, is fascinating to read while watching the film. Uh, it, it's fascinating to see where the actors, uh, you know, move off of the dialogue, uh, dialogue that was cut, dialogue that was added. I mean, it is a, it's an energetic experience, you know, to try to keep up, but, um, it's, it's really fun. And, um, I did that this time around and really enjoyed it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see who, who else is, uh, is high on your list. Uh, shall we talk, uh, well, since we're talking crew, yeah. let's just mention uh, Elmer Bernstein. The music in this is just powerful, and that uh, kind of that night dark jazz that's going on through here, I think, works so well for this world. It just has a just the, I don't know the brassiness of it just really hits home. I think it does. It is a it it certainly sets the tone of the time. I think when it first opens. When the film first opens, it it's it's both that sort of dirty grit, but also very Broadway. You know, it feels really appropriate to the streets. And you know, I wanted to ask you: there's a sequence. This is such a minor thing. 
nobody's going to care about this. But there's a sequence in there in the opening where they're throwing papers off the truck. And we're in the truck, and we've got a point of view from the inside the papers, and we're looking out on the street. Is that a process shot? Do you know what I'm talking about? I didn't think so. Um, I would have to go back and look at it, but I don't think any of the the newspaper stuff were process shots, although I could be wrong on that. I, I know exactly the shot you're talking about because it struck me being inside that truck, and I I didn't see it. It didn't have that processed feel i guess i don't know i just need to look at it again neither what it was weird because it was like i i don't know i felt like i i expected it to be handheld but it's really a lockdown camera and so you're moving with the with the sort of poor suspension of that truck yeah. and and so it's a little bit disarming when you watch it and that sort of sets the tone for me for the rest of it anyway to tie into the music i think that's uh it's those sorts of sequences in the beginning where you see the montage of of the you know the energy and the sort of rage of that midnight kind of overnight shift of distributing papers um, that that really sets the tone for the whole film. I think it just works really well. Interestingly, the uh, the jazz band uh, Hamilton and Cats that um, that Steve is a member of um, the the two uh, songsmiths of that actual jazz band had actually written the score for the film before they decided that they wanted to have Elmer Bernstein uh, do the score. So, I mean, they still have some songs that they actually play in in the in the context of the scenes. But, uh, I, you know, I, I think that would be very interesting to hear, but I do think Bernstein's score is just perfect for the film. Interestingly, it was Robert Vaughn who was originally uh, uh, slated to play Steve Dallas, uh, but he was uh, drafted. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, I wonder it would have been kind of a different film with uh, uh, Robert Vaughn. I thought um, I I really enjoy the sort of thuggish innocence of uh, Steve. Del- oh, see, no, what's his name? Who played Marty, Steve? Dallas? Marty Mil- Marty Milner. Milner, right? Yeah, I love his sort of innocence, and uh, and uh, you don't get you get much more sort of suave syndic- suave sophistication of Robert Vaughn. I don't think you get that. Uh, that innocence, I think that would have been a, a different relationship to try and break up. I agree. I think Milner was perfect for the role, and uh, I really enjoy watching him. Interestingly, uh, I suppose, um, he has actually as, plays in Mr. Roberts as a shore patrol officer. So <laughs> there you go. Another you go. tie <laughs> to our conversation about that film. On the list. There you go. Uh, the, I, I really liked the band. I, uh, I had a good time. Any, anytime we were in that bar, I think the experience of being in the bar, the crowd in the bar, the intimacy up against the stage as these guys are playing the, the freedom with which everybody, um, sort of interacts with the band as they're playing was just a really unique kind of experience for me. I just loved, uh, kind of being a part of it. I really felt like I was in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Man, it makes me want to go back and watch some old Adam 12. <laughs> old Nick at Night. There you go. He was also in uh, Swiss Family Robinson, which is uh, another uh, element of my childhood, having watched that film many times. Uh, did you ever see uh, <laughs> Valley of the Dolls? I didn't. That's uh, one of those, uh, I don't know if it's uh, on my list of shame. I don't know if I can say that about that film, but I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I think I think probably I mean it, yeah I I think you probably could be shamed that you you didn't see that one I mean you know it's Patty Duke that's right come on 
anyway, uh, let's see. So uh, we skipped over our main characters uh, as we jumped to Steve Dallas, but we should talk about J.J. Hunsecker, uh, Burt Lancaster's uh, portrayal of Hunsecker. Burt Lancaster was great uh, as the as the cantankerous older dude uh, in this he, film. He's uh, alarmingly just powerful in his in his presence. It's um, it, it doesn't take much for Lancaster to get across incredible threats with just a look or just a short sentence. He is an incredibly powerful, looming figure. And you can see why everybody is kind of afraid of this character. He doesn't really have friends. He only has people who kowtow to him and who really just feel the need to uh, to do whatever he wants them to do just so they can stay on his good side. Yeah, and he is he is incredibly adept at conscripting people who don't who who aren't aware of it until it's too late. So there's a sequence where we we actually you know meet Hunsecker for the first time, and he's actually holding court in a restaurant, and he's with a senator, and he's the senator is with a singer, and the singer's with a press agent, and a, apparently the press agent you know a, or or allegedly the press agent is toting around the the uh, uh, singer. Uh, this uh, lovely blonde uh, singer and this center it's kind of a weird threesome and and as the uh, conversation moves on you see just how savvy and smart Hunsecker is and he says uh, maybe it's a mannerism because I don't threaten friends Harvey but why furnish your enemies with ammunition you're a family man someday with God willing you may want to be president now here you are Harvey out in the open where any person knows that this one and he points to the press agent, is toting that one, pointing to the model, around for you. Uh, are we kids or what? And and so here we have this, this opportunity for, you're not sure, as they're having this conversation, you're not sure who's in the power situation right here. He's This is a guy, he's a, he's a columnist for a paper, right? Uh, and, and right across the table from him is a senator, a, a politician who you would think, you know, instantly the power would be uh, balanced toward him. And yet through just these these three little lines, uh, that completely changes. And we're introduced to Hunsecker in a way that just sucks all the power to his end of the table. And it's just brilliant to watch him deliver this line. I, I am so moved by it. Uh, in the meantime, we have, um, you know, Falco sitting, uh, sitting behind him sort of in witness to all this. And he looks as small as he ever does, as Tony Curtis ever could in this film. It's uh, brilliant. And a lot of the flack uh, for the film, which was a box office failure at the time, uh, came aside from the fact that audiences had a really hard time back in 57 about watching a film with two despicable characters. And there's really no one to watch who's redeeming other than kind of the supporting characters. It was a hard film for people to watch. But um, Lancaster was, uh, his character, J.J. Hunsecker, was loosely based, quote-unquote loosely, based on Walter Winchell, who at the time was one of the most notorious uh, American newspaper and radio gossip commentators. He was exactly what J.J. is in this film. He um, would uh, uh, write the paper just like this, and he was always um, gossiping. He had really kind of the first syndicated gossip column, and in it, he was always 
exposing people and he was, uh, I mean, really it's tabloid journalism, but he would attack people. He would use this place to get back at people if he didn't like them or they did something against him. In fact, he was, uh, and this is another thing that the film basically stole from Winchell's life. He was really enamored with his daughter, kind of more so than probably should be. And when his daughter expressed interest in this producer, he basically defamed this producer and destroyed his career. Oh, that's smart. That really smart. Yeah, and it's interesting how so few people registered that that's what was happening. People just kind of went along with it. And it took a few people to actually catch on or to actually stand up and fight against him and say, no, 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 this this is what's happening here. Um, and this film um, eventually came to be one where people saw what was happening and that this was kind of a story of the type of person that Walter Winchell is and kind of helped open people's eyes a little bit. You know, you mentioned something, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to derail us a little bit. You talked about how people can't, uh, couldn't appreciate a film with two despicable characters and that some of the supporting characters were... Um, you know, were probably likable. And, you know, I think the film actually pulls off quite a coup in that regard. It leads us to believe that, you know, in particular, Susan's the the character to watch. But I'm not sure she's all that likable either at the end. I think that she's likable. I just think she's she is a weak character. And for that, I find it interesting that that's how they portrayed her, especially in this story where it really comes across where J.J. has a a a, a taste for his sister that is more than just brotherly. There's something about the way that he uh, wants to care for her and always be there for her that just feels inappropriate. And it's uh, it's a little hard to watch. And she is so put down by his his control that I, I do find her pretty interesting. And by the end, I feel like there is some redemption in that she's able to stand up and, and kind of uh, stand up and fight for herself. She this, That's the only time, I believe, where we actually see her where she's not wearing her fur coat. When she walks out, she's wearing a very plain, ordinary coat. And she's going off to be with Steve, who has been arrested on pot charges and for being a communist. And she's gonna. She would rather be with him uh, than be with JJ. And I, th- I thought there was redemption there. You didn't think so, though. Well, huh? no, it wasn't even so much about the redemption. I thought she was a. She was. She was redeemed in her storyline. But at the at one point, you know, after she and and Sydney are have their row, Sydney saves her from jumping, and then it comes back, and Hunsaker comes in the room, and there is a sequence where Hunsaker comes in, and you you know he gets a a sense for what has been going on in that room. That is not accurate. That's not what happened. And it's because Sidney put himself in a very difficult position. He had just saved her from jumping off of this uh, out off of the balcony and killing herself. And in doing so, he brought her back in, put her on the bed, and then locked the door. So the door was locked. There was, you know, when Hunsaker comes in, all he sees is Sidney in the room with his sister in and they're thrown all over the bed. The sister stands up, Susan stands up, and there's a two shot on uh, Susan with Hunsaker in front of her, and you can tell in that moment she has the opportunity to clear it up, but she is she has now turned on Sydney as well, and their relationship all along has been 
you know, adversarial, but still, they, they've known each other a long time. Uh, and there's a great sequence in the beginning. We have the, you know, in fact, the, the hero photo on the website and in the, the podcast episode is is the three of them, the poster of Steve uh, in his jazz band with with Sydney leaning up against the against the poster and then her standing in front of it. That's a, a, a wonderful little sequence where we see that they have kind of a contentious but but almost more sibling kind of rivalry than she does with Hunsecker. And yet here we are in the end where she turns on Sydney. She's so exasperated by both of them that you can tell she's going to let Hunsaker loose without clearing up any misunderstanding. Well, and not only that, but she, as we learn, is the one who actually called Sydney over. Yeah. She's the one who, who got him there um, under a false pretense that right. JJ actually wanted her to be there, and and when you when Sydney understands that, he realizes that she has basically caught on to this entire situation and is now set out to destroy them both or have them destroy each other, really. Right, and so you know, I don't know who who would be the the you know genuinely redemptive character in this thing. Would it be Steve? Is he the one we're supposed to we're supposed to really care about? Yeah, I Possibly. think I mean yeah. I think Steve is very uh, very much a character that we're meant to care about and who is redeemed in our eyes because he is the only one who ever stands up to uh, to JJ until the end when when uh, she finally does. And right. uh and seeing Susan actually uh take that stand I think may not have happened if she had not seen Steve do it before. All right. We're in violent I, agreement. Yes, there you go. All right. Uh, all right, who else do we want to talk about now that we've solved all the problems of the world? <laughs> all the problems of the world solved just now. I love the way that uh, Kello is, uh, Lieutenant Kello is written. Um, Emil Meyer plays him. There's something that is so strange about him as a, uh, as a lieutenant. Um, just, I mean, he's a corrupt lieutenant that basically also kind of does what J.J. wants. And I find him fascinating to watch, especially when he says lines like, what's that line he says when when Sydney is walking away? He's like, come back here, Sydney. I would like to chastise you. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> such a strange line of dialogue. That's right. But, he does. But somehow coming out of him in this film, it actually ends up feeling uh, feeling right. And I just really enjoy watching this guy because he just enjoys what he does way too much it it's funny like the way his his mouth works (laughs) i think that's what i fixated on his mouth right i get the peculiar impression snooks that you don't like me you know it's like his lips (laughs) move in this very strange way that you look at them and it's like words should not be coming out of that that's more like like sausage should be coming out (laughs) something else yes yes and yes, I agree. It is so good. I totally agree with you. Emil Meyer. Mm-hmm. He has his buddy, uh, who we don't hear much from. Uh, but it is an, an interesting... He be, he serves an interesting sort of relationship as a tool for Hunsecker, and, and we see him repeatedly uh, coming in to beat people up and, and uh, you know, falsely arrest and uh, very corrupt. Yes, indeed. And then the other person that I, I wanted to bring up was Barbara Nichols, who plays Rita. I love this character in the film. She is a friend of Sid's, who is one of the two women who really kind of has a thing for him. And he is just awful to her. 
And I love the way that the scene is written when he basically gets her to, in order to basically get this other um, uh, newsman to write this story to help JJ in his uh, quest to bring down Steve, he gets her to sleep with this other guy. And it's just painful and it breaks your heart as you, as, as we watch her suffering this degradation by, uh, by Falco, which is just, it's torturous to watch. But then the great twist at the end of that uh, scene, which just, it, it, I think is just so brilliant because it basically tells you that uh, because the, uh, the other newsman ha- keeps asking her like, oh, where have I seen you before? Where did we meet? Uh, was it uh, was it in at Niagara? And she's like, no, I've never seen you before. And she kind of keeps going until the very end when he asks her again. And she's like, it was Palm Springs. And it's so great because it tells you she really is the sort who probably would just sleep around with, with somebody like this. But that's not what the point of the scene was. The point of the scene was that she had to suffer her friend and this guy who she really liked and wanted to be with active actively making her do it. And that's what breaks your heart. Yeah, truly. It's that, it's that, that moment of awareness that she, that she has and him really begging because he knows that, that, you know, with her in play, um, you know, if she does this, then he, he, the pieces of his sort of, uh, machine start to fall together. Um, it's, it's really, it's tough to watch. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you're right. She is delightful. The other delightful character who I can't, uh, I, I can't actually place what was her name. It was um, uh, uh, Falco's secretary? assistant, his secretary. Oh, yeah. Uh, she is just uh, delightful. I really enjoyed watching her. She has that sort of dowdy kind of, um, she's a dowdy kind of introvert uh, character really down, but I find her like the perfect match for Falco. It was just uh, a great, uh, great match what was her name but, yeah, was that mary was, was that, i think it was sally i sally. think that was sally uh jeff Donnell. and actually mary edith atwater was the um uh was the uh was falco uh, was uh jj's secretary right 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 that's right and who was also uh, great who was also great yeah absolutely yeah and you know who we didn't talk about at all was tony curtis <laughs> yes that's right well he was next <laughs> he was yeah <laughs> we're saving the best for last <laughs> Uh, yes, Bernard Herschel Schwartz, uh, good old Tony Curtis. Probably How do you get uh, there from there. I don't, I don't know. That's what that's one of the ones where the uh, the guy at the studio is just like, no, no one's gonna go with Bernard Schwartz. We'll call you Tony Curtis. Right. Like, okay, <laughs> sign me up. Um, is I mean, you, you've already said it. I mean, he's just brilliant in this film. He's so dark, and he at this point in his career had been doing a lot of lighter lighter stuff. And this was really a chance for him to kind of break out. He was hoping for something to give people a, uh, a, a taste that he could do more and that he could, he could really um, carry a film in a way that uh, you know, was not what people expected. And playing such a villainous character was, was exactly what he wanted. Unfortunately, it wasn't what the audiences wanted, <laughs> and they had a hard Unfortunately, time. Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. Uh, but thank God he did, because now we have it. I mean, this film has uh, gone on to get ridiculous amounts of praise. 
since then, even if people didn't like it then, people have since realized that it is an amazing film, and it's a, it's amazing to watch these two dark characters as they uh, dig themselves into the ground, so to speak. When I uh, I had a career change, when I left uh, broadcasting for a number of years, I went into public relations, and uh, when I told my father that, and my father had been a, in the television in business for 30 years, and when I told my father that, he sent me this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we, we never talked about it. We, we never talked about it. It was just watch this movie. And uh, that was it. I, so I'm not sure what the message is. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I want the message to be. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'm not in the PR anymore. Let's say that. That is awesome. Pretty though. good. That yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, good old Tony Curtis. He was around forever. He only just uh, passed away five years ago. 129 credits. Yep. Whew. This was good. Yes, indeed. Uh, anybody else on your hot list as we uh, near the uh, the end? Um, I we're think all, that's... We're all backwards because we started with crew. I know. It's crazy. It's like, what what are we doing? <laughs> Wacky uh, people. We've... So you you already said it did not do well. Did you find any good numbers uh, to to uh, kick us to keep us in line? Uh, yes, this film, um, which came out in 1957, cost 3.4 million to make, which is about 28 million dollars in today's dollars. Um, it made. I can only find domestic figures. Uh, two. million dollars which is about 18 and a half million so it ended up being a box office loser it ended up losing about uh, $99,000 per finished minute so it did very poorly at the box office but like I said it uh, is one that stuck in people's memories and as time wore on its legacy has only grown all these different publications, Sight and Sound, Empire, New York Times, uh, Time, Entertainment Weekly. They all have it on their you know best movies of all time list. And it's just, it's a film that really sticks. And I mean, so good that in 2002, Marvin Hamlish, Craig Carnelia, and John Guare uh, made Sweet Smell of Success the musical. Oh, man. That's a... <laughs> It's a real sing-along. <laughs> a real chipper, uplifting Ooh, one, huh? Talk about an earworm. I'd be curious to have seen that one and see how it played out. No kidding. Looks um, like... Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to see if I can... See looks if I can like John, John Lithgow was in it. Oh, John Lithgow. He's in everything. <laughs> let's uh, let's uh, rank it. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, everybody, and you need to uh, you need to sign up if you're not already a member, because if you sign up, then you can start matching movies with us. And uh, let's just see how uh, a sweet smell of success on our list ranks to your list. The global ranking of sweet smell of success for this film is 156. Wow. Yeah. Pretty high. Pretty high. Let's do it. All right, let's see where it ends on ours. Sweet Smell of Success or The Road Warrior? Well. I'm doing Sweet Smell of Success. Really? Yeah. Why? Sell it. I, I the, the characters are just fascinating to watch. Even though they're dark characters, I am riveted to the screen constantly as I watch this film. The dialogue is just constant acerbic dialogue. 
very witty, very funny, but uh, very dangerous. And it just feels very edgy all the way through. And even though it doesn't have the violence like Road Warrior does, this film actually ends up feeling almost more violent to me. Okay. I'm with you. Did I sell it? Mm-hmm. All right. Sweet Smell of Success or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So I would do Sweet Smell of Success here. Okay, now you sell it because I want to go with Eternal Sunshine. Uh, I, you know, I find just the, the watching this film uh, is is such a um, energetic and active experience, and Eternal Sunshine I find sometimes can be um, it can be a, a little bit uh, turgid. Even though I enjoy it, it's it is um, it's just I would I think I would put this one on first. You know, I'm going to go with you, and I think the reason is because of the subplots with. Uh, uh, Elijah Wood and Mark Ruffalo, I think, uh, which I don't know if that really makes sense, but I enjoy so much the Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet bits that uh, those other bits just feel like it slows it down a little bit for me. So I'll go sweet smell of success. So let's just replay what just happened there. Pete, sell it. Pete sells it. Andy says, okay, I'm going to go with you, but not for a single thing that you said. <laughs> <laughs> No, that was, that was good. Let's replay that with some other matchups because that was good. That's good. I was saying yes, you and <laughs> yes and I'll take it. All right. Okay, sweet smell of success or Fight Club. This is an interesting matchup between two films about two men going at it with each other. I'm gonna do Fight Club. I knew you would. I'll go Fight Club. It's uh, it's a tough call, though, for me. Hmm. <laughs> You're like, nah, not really. <laughs> Sweet smell of success or the descent. Ooh. I'm going to say... hasn't popped up in a while. I want to say sweet smell. I am, too. Sweet smell of success or misery. I'm going to have to go sweet smell. <sighs> yeah, I will, too. Sweet smell of success or double indemnity. Mm, mm, Very mm. noirish battle here. I'm still on sweet smell of success. I, ah, oh boy. If I had voted on this before watching both of them recently, I probably would have picked double indemnity, but this time I actually do feel like I'm going to go sweet smell of yeah, success. I think you will too. Although on this one, I don't know if it's going to be the... The same. Sweet smell of success or ace in the hole? I am going to go ace in the hole. Oh, see, I had a feeling you would. <laughs> um, I think I've got to go sweet smell. Okay, are we going to have to uh, rock, paper, scissors, water this one? <laughs> are you, um, uh, like, how how firm are you on ace in the hole? I'm pretty firm. Pretty firm, like eight, nine, ten. Yep. Hmm. All right, let's do it. Okay. One, two, two three. Rock. Scissors. Ah, oh, first one. <laughs> uh. uh, you know, it still, I think, is pretty good. Number yeah, 26 out of 188. I think that is a, a strong place for that film to land. I think so, too. That feels pretty good. Where do we take it from here? Next week, we're going to be finishing our wonderful black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with the trippy seconds. Little uh, Frankenheimer action. 
Nice. And we, we mentioned this one uh, recently, right? I feel like we've mentioned it uh, off and on. I can't remember. Was there a specific this was a, reason this we mentioned it? This was a trailer. It? There was a trailer that came up that made you think of this movie. Uh, right? About the... It was the body switching thing. Oh, with, uh, it was uh, yeah, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds, yeah. And Gandhi, yes. Yeah, and yes. Gandhi. <laughs> <laughs> if only they could have figured that out with Gandhi. Where would we be? <laughs> that would have been brilliant. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. It was that trailer, which does remind me quite a bit of Seconds. Um, and it, <laughs> if you like Gandhi, <laughs> you'll love John Frankenheimer's Seconds. <laughs> no, the guy, Gandhi. If you like the guy, Gandhi. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, all right. Brilliant. All right. Well, this one has a global ranking of 666. Oh. So, there you go. There's a there's a, a biblically uh, interesting <laughs> right. ranking for the film. Right. <laughs> I look forward to watching this one uh, next week. Until then, uh, Andrew, I'm going to bed. All right, I got to I smell something. What is that? Oh. oh, look at that. There's some success in the other room. <laughs> what a sweet smell. <laughs> You're a dope. <laughs> I got one from Brian, Andy. Brian mm-hmm. wrote into to Amazon. He says, Dear Amazon, except for he didn't say that. <laughs> I had the misfortune of seeing this film in the theater years ago. How I felt about it? Boring. Way too much. Yep, yep, yep. Bert, the Burt Lancaster part is based on Walter Winchell. Poor Walter. I don't think he was any saint, but I wouldn't confuse him with Satan either. Also in cast, Tony Curtis. I don't like this film at all. Bert and Tony made better ones. I read that one because Satan. <laughs> I also like the fact that he says also in cast Tony Curtis and then <laughs> has nothing to say about Tony oh, no. Curtis. Yep. There we go. Fantastic. What do you got? Well, I have a one star by Dick Fai Liu, who uh, clearly has some problems with the dialogue. Uh, here are a few memorable lines from this movie. Sydney, the brains may be Jersey City, but the clothes are Trainer Norell. Sydney, a press agent, eats a columnist's dirt and is expected to call it mana. Hunsucker, Sydney conjugate me a verb. For instance, to promise. You promised to break up that romance. When? Oh, mercy, who wrote this tripe? I know the movie is supposedly film noir, and therefore its dialogue is excused as artsy rather than realistic. But can anyone really endure these pretentious lines with a straight face? Tried as I might to respect this movie's highfalutin aspiration, as I watched the movie, I kept laughing until tears rolled down my cheeks. And this was a movie in which his main character, Susie, was, you know, see, interesting that he says Susie's the main character, was so tortured that she tried to commit suicide. Ironically, she was the only character who talked like a normal person. Maybe it was the long-suffering dialogues that pushed her over the edge. <laughs> 
The plot is intriguing and the cinematography well-crafted. This could have been a good movie were it not for its hideous dialogues. But that's like saying that nuclear energy could have been a smashing success were it not for Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. Wow. I don't think it's like those things. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think that's an apt comparison. It is a very, very strange comparison to bring up. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, once again, Amazon, thank you for your contribution to uh, cinematic culture. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>